So some of you are familiar with the name Jackson Pollock. Uh, he did paintings like this one that looked to me like a wall in a paint factory that exploded. Pollock did these paintings uh, just by dripping paint on canvas. This painting was sold for $165 million in 2006. Another painter in the same vein is Mark Rothko. Uh, this is perhaps his most famous painting, entitled Number 14. And I, I guess that is a pretty good title, since the painting doesn't seem uh, to represent much of anything. Rothko did a lot of paintings like this one, a black background uh, with some other colors on top. Now, I don't want to impugn your opinion of Scripture, but to me, Genesis 5 reminds me of a Mark Rothko painting. First of all, Genesis chapter 5 has a black background. Death. My first text here this morning in Genesis 5 is repeated eight times. Verse 5, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8, so all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, so all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 14, so all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Verse 17, so all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Verse 20, so all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Verse 27. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And then verse 31, finally. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And he died. That is the refrain to human life from the beginning. Every human being faces death. It is appointed unto man once to die. We all face this foe. Now, I actually postponed preaching this sermon for two weeks because we as a church family have been reminded of this truth in the most personal, awful way. We grieve the loss of a lively, joyful five-year-old. 
And yet none of us sitting here in this room this morning expect to die anytime soon. It's true. The reality of death is very poignant with us right now, but none of us really expects to die. But here's the thing. In relation to eternity, the difference between five years and 70 years or 80 years or 90 years is a nanosecond. James says our lives are but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. The truth is that every human being faces this black background and has since the beginning of time. Now, as we focus on the text before us here in Genesis 5, let me make three observations about the the deaths of these eight patriarchs. First of all, their deaths fulfilled God's warning in the garden. Their deaths fulfilled God's warning in the garden. God told Adam, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. But to all appearances, to this point in Scripture, up through the end of Genesis 4, God is a liar. The ground was cursed for Adam's sake, yes. Eve's sorrow in pregnancy was multiplied, her her pain in bearing children, yes. Both Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, never again to walk with God in the cool breeze of the afternoon. Yes, all of that happened, but they had not surely died. And it seems to me that this repeated refrain here in Genesis chapter 5, and he died, is God demonstrating, documenting for all time that because of that original sin, Adam did indeed surely die and every generation after him died. God wanted to make clear here at the beginning of Scripture that connection between sin and death. It's here eightfold. Romans 5 puts it this way, death entered the world through sin And so death spread to all men because all sin. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And by weaving these words, and he died, into this genealogy, God revealed 
a second closely related truth, a truth that I don't think all Christians really understand. Their deaths reveal that sin passes from one generation to the next. Sin passes from one generation to the next. If the soul that sins dies, then it's obvious in this chapter that every generation inherits the sin nature of Adam and thus is subject to death. Even when Enoch didn't die, but walked with God straight into glory, bypassing death, even then Enoch passed on the sin nature to his son Methuselah, who died. Every generation of human beings is born dying because we're born in sin. David put it this way in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Don't misunderstand. The point isn't that David's mother was raped or that he was conceived out of sexual immorality. That is not the idea. Jesse and his wife were married. Rather, what David is teaching us here is that it's not only the sin nature that's passed on generation to generation, it's the guilt of that original sin of Adam that's passed on generation to generation. Listen, we're born dying not because we immediately begin to sin as infants, not because we immediately begin to sin in our innocency. We're born dying because the guilt of Adam's sin is passed from the father to every child generation after generation. With one exception, Jesus Christ, who did not have a human father, but was conceived within Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then another observation concerning the deaths of these patriarchs. Their deaths remind us that even the godly must wrestle with the fearsome foe death. Even the godly must wrestle with death. Remember, these verses are the genealogy of the godly line of Seth. These were the men who called upon the name of the Lord, who called upon the name of Yahweh. To use the phrase in the last verse of chapter 4, men who had a covenant relationship with the living God, men who worshipped God in some kind of a public forum. We've talked about what saving faith looked like at this point. It was faith in the one gospel promise that human beings had at this point. The promise that God would send the seed through the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. And these apparently were men who put faith in that promise and expected salvation from God on that basis. But even 
men of faith died. Now, Enoch breaks this pattern, and we'll talk about that truth in a few moments, but this chapter establishes this pattern that at some point even the faithful must face death. Remember what I emphasized a few weeks ago. There are only two types of people in the world, the godly and the ungodly, those who embrace God's promises and those who reject God's promises, those who embrace the Savior and those who reject the Savior. Only two types of people. And these two groups are divided by the most important issues in life and the most important issues after death. But we must not overstate the difference between these two groups. You know, believers have a lot in common with unbelievers. How many of you got out of bed this morning? So did they. How many of you are going to go to work tomorrow? So will they. We eat and sleep and work and pay our bills just like they do. We love and marry and raise children just like they do. And we get sick and we age and we die just like they do. Trusting Christ for salvation does not immediately take us to heaven. does not immediately deliver us from the curse. As I said a few minutes ago, death is the refrain to human life. Every human being faces death. It is appointed on the man once to die. We all face this foe, believer and unbeliever alike. And death is a fearsome foe. The the scriptures speak of the fear of death. That's a thing. It's not a thing because I said so. It's not a thing because some psychologist said so. It's a thing because the Scripture says so. David in Psalm 55 speaks of the terrors of death. More poetically in Psalm 23, he speaks of the valley of the shadow of death. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of the sting of death. Death is a fearsome foe. Why do human beings fear death? You know, if we were going to be having a discussion this afternoon, that would make a great discussion question. But probably the greatest reason that men fear death is they simply fear the unknown. You know, without this book, left to ourselves, no human being knows what's on the other side. Is it non-existence? Is it nothingness? Is it eternal punishment? Is it some kind of purgatory? Is it reincarnation as a cow or a rat or a roach? Is it some kind of eternal happiness? Fear of the unknown afterlife is the shroud that makes death so fearsome. And here's the thing. I have to think that these eight patriarchs feared death. 
got to remember, up to this point in human history, very few people had died. And up to this point in human history, God had given no promises with regard to eternal life. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So this is the... This is the dark, black background of Genesis 5. But as in a Mark Rothko painting, against this dark, black background, there are three bright colors. Now, Rothko only has two colors here, but Genesis chapter 5 has three bright colors. The first is the color of hope. The color of hope. A few Sundays back, we we focused on Enoch. And his story is summarized here in verse 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. As opposed to these eight patriarchs that I've been focusing on this morning... Enoch did not die. We do not find the phrase in his story, and he died. It's not there. His story ends with very different words, very striking words. And he was not, for God took him. God took him straight to glory without walking through the door of death, without facing that fearsome foe. And so the story of Enoch offers us two types of hope. First of all, the hope of life after death. The hope of eternal life. This is the first event that could have given any of God's people at this early date any hope whatsoever that they would live with God in glory after they died, that there was such a thing as everlasting life. As New Testament Christians, we often overlook the fact that the Old Testament has very little to say about eternal life. The first outright statement in the Old Testament of of a hope of eternal life is found in Job 19. Job expressed this hope. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. These are amazing words. And after my skin is destroyed, after, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. 
Now, we think that Job probably lived during the age of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so that would have been after the flood. It would have been hundreds of years after this point in human history before Job enunciated this kind of a hope. It was still many years in the future. In a couple of Psalms, there's an indication that those who are God's people should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. In Psalm 73, Asaph declares his hope. Speaking to God, he says, You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. And then perhaps the clearest revelation of a resurrection to everlasting life in the Old Testament is found in Daniel 12.2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So get this. There's only a handful of indications in the Old Testament of a promise of everlasting life for God's people. But the first indication is here in Genesis 5 and verse 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. It's just a glimmer. It's just a glimpse of glory. But it may be that some of these early patriarchs laid hold of that hope that they too would live with God and commune with Him after they died. That same hope that Job had. That in their flesh they would see God. Now, if there's only a handful of these kinds of promises in the Old Testament, we have a truckload of these promises in the New Testament. And we all ought to stand up and sing the doxology. We find promises of eternal life in nearly every book in the New Testament. And the pinnacle of these promises is the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the description of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, which we've been studying on Wednesday night. For us, the hope of eternal life is a confident expectation that in glorified resurrection bodies, we will enjoy a glorious, beautiful God forever. Thank you for that one amen. And we all ought to stand up and sing the doxology again. Because God has given us promise after promise after promise after promise of everlasting life with Him. And then the story of Enoch offers a second type of hope specifically for us as Christians today, the hope of the rapture. The hope of the rapture. Enoch was the first believer to be caught away by God without seeing death. He is the type of every believer who walks with God and never dies never has to face the fearsome foe because the Lord catches him away. 
And this indeed ought to be the blessed hope of every believer here today. Now, Enoch was indeed raptured. He was caught away directly into God's presence in his earthly body. But our hope is a little bit different. We look for the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to catch us away. But when he does catch us away, we will also be changed in that moment. Given our glorified resurrection bodies like the body Jesus had after he was resurrected. Many of us have memorized one of the greatest hope-filled passages in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. I'm just going to read the last three of those verses. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Would it not be wonderful to cheat that fearsome foe, death? To be part of the glorious return of Christ for his own? To hear the shout, to hear the voice of the archangel, the peal of the trumpet of God, calling us from that moment onward and forever to be with the Lord in resurrection bodies. Yes, the color of hope is bright against the dark background of what we see here in Genesis 5. And then there's a second bright color here in Genesis 5, although it's a bit more muted than the color of hope. It's the color of long-suffering. The color of long-suffering. Notice again the verses here in Genesis 5 that describe Enoch. Verses 21 through 24. They tell us that a turning point in Enoch's life was the birth of his son Methuselah. It was after the birth of Methuselah that he walked with God for 300 years. Remember also something we talked about Three or four weeks ago, Enoch was a prophet. And so naming his son was very important. Now a possible translation of Methuselah is man of a weapon or man of the spear. But that doesn't seem to make sense with what we know about Enoch. On the other hand... The name could be made up of two other words, one which means die and the other which means sent. So it's possible that Methuselah means when he dies, it will be sent. When he dies, it will be sent. Stick with me. Now, we need to add another fact on top of the possible meaning of Methuselah's name. 
This genealogy here in Genesis 5 is one of only two genealogies in the Bible that include the ages of the men when they were born and when they die. And using the numbers in this genealogy, it's possible to calculate that the flood occurred 1,656 years after creation. It's also possible to calculate a couple of other interesting factoids, such as Methuselah's son died five years before he did, the only person in this genealogy to predecease his father. And another factoid, Methuselah died in the year of the flood. Now, we need to do some addition, okay? 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 make what? Okay, some of you did take math. So, let's do some addition. Enoch was a prophet, 2. Enoch gave his son an unusual name. When he dies, it will be sent. Another 2. When Methuselah died, God sent the flood, 2. And then there's a final two that we need to add. Methuselah died the oldest human being ever to live. I actually thought about entitling this sermon that. The oldest human being. But I found that abstract painting and I had to just change everything. Now, think about that. That additional fact that Methuselah was the oldest human being who ever lived, that's what makes this so encouraging. God kept Methuselah alive decade after decade and year after year, putting off the destruction of mankind in the flood. Why? Why would God do that? Well, Peter answers that question in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 is actually based on the events in Genesis 5 and in Genesis 6 that have to do with the flood. And here's Peter's inspired comment. Again, a number of us, we've memorized this verse. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why did God put off the death of Methuselah year after year to give human beings who were going to be destroyed in God's judgment in the flood more opportunity to repent and to turn to God's promise and God's Savior. Now we live in a day very like Methuselah's. We live in a day very like Noah's. 
And when I think about Jesus returning to, to catch us away, my prayer is, even so, come, Lord Jesus. But I'll tell you what happens when Jesus comes to catch us away, the final judgment of sinners will begin. We've just studied it on Wednesday nights. And it seems to me that God is extending the time before Christ returns. Just as he extended the life of Methuselah in long-suffering, he is doing the same today, giving human beings time to repent and turn to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. And there may be someone here this morning, God is extending the time before the final judgment for your sake. So that you can turn from your sin to trust Christ and follow Christ. And then there's a final bright color against the black background of death here in Genesis 5. And that's the color of grace. The color of grace. If you need to, flip over a page and let's read Genesis 6, verses 7 and 8. Genesis 6, verses 7 and 8. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But... Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I'll not say much about this color because we're going to be talking a lot about Noah in the next few weeks. But this is the first appearance of the word grace in the Bible. And it is set directly in the context of the death of millions of human beings in the judgment of the flood. In Genesis 6. And what form did that grace take? It's real simple. It's a three-letter word. It begins with A and ends with K. The ark. An ark saved Noah from the destruction of that worldwide flood. And we'll talk more about this truth in the next few weeks, but that ark is a picture of Jesus. That ark took Noah and his family through that flood of God's wrath. And that's the very same thing that Jesus does for us. It's pointed on man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And if a person dies and goes to that judgment without Jesus Christ, without being in the ark, the flood of God's wrath will carry them to an eternal hell. But 
Jesus died on the cross to bear the wrath of God on your sins and mine. And each of us, God calls upon to make what I call a double decision. First of all, he calls upon us to trust what Jesus did on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And then second, he calls on us to turn from our sin, to turn from our own way and follow Jesus. The Bible calls that believing and repenting. It's a double decision that every person here needs to make. Now, you may not like the art of Mark Rothko, but it does remind us that in the midst of death and judgment, God holds out hope and mercy and grace. And this morning, it's a real stark choice. Will you opt for the darkness or will you opt for the brilliant colors of hope and mercy and grace? It's a clear-cut choice. And I want to conclude my message this morning with a couple of stories, one of them an extended story that emphasizes that choice between darkness and the bright color of hope and mercy and grace. I have a lifelong friend named Paul. Paul was my pastor's son. He and I are the same age, born just a couple of months apart. We grew up together literally from the church nursery onward. We went through high school in the same classes. We attended Bob Jones University together. Today, Paul is also a pastor, and the first story that I share is his story, his experience. Paul lives in Delaware, but years ago, he returned to our hometown, Greensburg, Pennsylvania, about 30 miles outside of Pittsburgh, and while he was there, he had a skiing accident, and he broke his leg just at his hip He required surgery, weeks of physical therapy, and here is what happened in the hospital room the night after his surgery. These are his words. I quote, Next to me through the light green semi-translucent curtain was another patient. I could hear him groaning, but I could not see him. Someone of the seemingly endless stream of people in and out of the room told me he was 93 years old and very ill, trying to make it back from a serious operation, and that his name was John Cornwell. It's not his real name. Mr. Cornwell was so deaf as well as disoriented, it was impossible to communicate with him. On the first night in room 217 with Mr. Cornwell, I was feeling bad and really hoping I could find some way to sleep, but it was impossible. 
not so much because of my own pain, but the noise, interruptions, lights on and off, and so on. I'm used to sleeping in undisturbed, quiet darkness. But by far the worst aspect was Mr. Cornwell's moaning, hacking coughs, and mumbling diatribes. He coughed like his entire insides were jarring loose, then uttered sounds impossible to decipher. Out of every ten sounds, only one or two seemed like actual words and half of those curse words. The sounds were deep and guttural and the tone impossible for me to forget or even try to imitate. That night was the most uncomfortable I ever remember being in my life. But I had no choice but to lie there and wait for the morning light. By the second night, I was thoroughly exhausted because I had now not slept for the last 60 or more hours. I was starting to feel panicky inside. I remember actually thinking, what in the world can I do to get myself out of here right now? I was in a lot of pain, far from home, in a room with an obviously dying man, and I was desperately in need of sleep. The last time I remember looking at the clock, it was around 1.30 a.m. Then I apparently dozed off for the first time in days. At 3 a.m., I was awakened suddenly because Mr. Cornwell was very agitated. His voice sounded full of fear, but he called out perfectly clearly, Will there be lightness or will there be darkness? I was suddenly completely wide awake again. I laid perfectly still, not wanting to be there. Four more times over the next two hours, he distinctly cried out those exact same words. A couple of times as though he was demanding an answer, a couple of times pitifully, helplessly, as though pleading for one, will there be lightness or will there be darkness? I have never been this creeped out in my life as I lay only several feet from a man who was at the end of his life's journey and finally, awfully, confronting in his spirit that he was at the very verge of stepping either into the light or being pulled down into the darkness. And he desperately wanted to know which. I wanted to be out of that place so badly. I knew I was witnessing something awful. I prayed, but I had no way to alter the situation. I could not move, and he could not hear. The third night I was even more exhausted, and I was relieved to find Mr. Cornwell seemed much more quiet all night long. And the next morning when I came back from therapy, Mr. Cornwell was gone. I didn't ask anyone why. I knew why. To be perfectly honest, I was relieved the room even felt and smelled like a completely different place. I was struck as two young female orderlies were changing out the bedding for the next old sick man who replaced Mr. Cornwell. As they stripped the linens and tucked in new sheets on the bed where someone had just struggled with death and what it means, they blithely talked about their new perms, a party they were going to that night, and how much they were going to drink. They were 20-somethings. The tunnels of lightness and darkness were not even yet in their imaginations, but they are ahead of them, too, as for all of us. 
just around who knows which of life's turns. I'll never forget Mr. Cornwell, nor his haunting question, will there be lightness or will there be darkness? That's Paul's story, a story that's part of that black background. Now compare that story with a second story, also from the church in which I grew up, a story of hope and mercy and grace. In the church in which I grew up, there was an older, beloved man named Murray Fritz. (laughs) He was one of those men who were always old and gray from the first moment I realized they were there. And only kids that grow up in church can know what I mean. As a child and as a teenager, I, I, I never really knew his story, but later as an adult, here's what I learned. As a young man, Mr. Fritz had worked at the Indianapolis 500 Speedway as a mechanic. He had been involved in developing the legendary Duesenberg automobile, to many the finest automobile ever built. He was a master mechanic and owner of a successful car repair business in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, my hometown. His wife became, uh, began coming to my home church, Church of the Open Door, uh, in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. And then my pastor, Robert Nitz, began getting his car serviced at Fritz's garage. Now, my pastor, Pastor Nitz, was a strong soul winner. And in time, he led Murray Fritz to the Lord. And after that, Mr. Fritz grew rapidly in his faith and in his knowledge of God's Word. By the time I remember Mr. Fritz, his wife had already passed away. He became a deacon, and he was always serving other people in the church in so many hands-on ways. By the time he was in his 70s, he was a respected elder in our congregation, a man that I remember with a smile because of his servant's heart and his humility. At 90-something, Murray Fritz also lay dying. But in his home, with an at-home nurse, after medical care had become pointless for him. The nurse was a lady from our church named Bonnie. I think my wife will remember Bonnie. She was with Mr. Fritz the night he died, and here is her testimony. In contrast to Mr. Cornwell, Mr. Fritz was at great peace. Then in the middle of the night, Bonnie heard him stirring and went to his bedside. She heard his last words. I hear music. I see angels. Then a few moments later, I see glory. And then he passed from this life into the next. This morning I've tried to, to paint this contrast before you in terms of a, an abstract painting, but the contrast takes place in human lives. 
will there be lightness? Or will there be darkness in your life at the end? There's only one way to make certain of it. That's to make that double decision. To trust Christ. To bear your sin. To forgive your sin. And to turn from your sin and follow Jesus Christ. Some of you, you've made one of those decisions, but you've not made the other. There's someone here facing eternity. What will your decision be today? Let me ask you just to close your eyes for a moment. And answer that question. Will there be lightness or will there be darkness? Have you made that double decision? You can make it right now.